The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. In today's programme, The Magic of Mezcal with Dino Moncrief, brand ambassador for The Lost Explorer and the creator of the Cocktail of the Year, his mirror margarita. Dino is passionate about diversity in the drinks world and what he has to say and what he's already done is both important and also inspiring. So do stay tuned for that. Plus later on, getting back on the road again, Freddie Bulmer, a buyer for the Wine Society, has been stuck at home for much of the last 18 months. In his regular monthly chat, we'll talk about why he's so keen to be back amidst the vines. Plus the usual inspiration with medal-winning wine and spirit recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. When it comes to agave, if tequila is the drink you think you know, then the chances are that mezcal is the one that fascinates you. I might be speaking for myself here, but I developed an appreciation for top-notch tequila a while ago now, whereas mezcal has been a much more recent source of intrigue. A trip to Oaxaca in Mexico almost two years ago was the turning point, the moment I truly fell for its smoky charms. Dino Moncrief is an award-winning agave specialist who's probably already forgotten more than I could possibly even know about tequila and mezcal. Uh, he owns the bar Acha in Dalston here in London, soon to be joined by another new bar in Brixton. More about that shortly. And he's also brand ambassador for the Lost Explorer Mezcal. He happens to have created the cocktail of the year last year, his Mirror Margarita. And he's also a driving force in supporting minorities in the on-trade, having launched Equal Measures last year, aimed at trying to increase the diversity of the UK hospitality industry. Uh, Dino, uh, thank you very much. I know you're a very busy man. So thank you for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's, uh, it's great to speak to you again. Thank you. Uh, tell us then how you first fell for the charms of agave. Well, it's um, it started quite a long time ago, actually. I, I had a, an old um, boss of mine who was uh, an American uh, gentleman, and um, this was, wow, maybe 20 years ago. So we were working together in Paris, and um, he he kept talking to me about tequila and, you know, he said, come on, let's go out for tequila after work. And I was like, no, I don't really like tequila. And he was like, trust me, you haven't had good tequila. And he was so passionate about the category. And I was like, okay, so we went out. And I, it was the first time that I tried a Reposado tequila, which is a lightly uh, aged tequila. This one, um, anywhere between this one was probably about eight to nine months old and I tried it and I was like oh wow this isn't <laughs> this isn't what I thought it was going to be so it was I think my experience is similar to a lot of people's experiences with tequila that you know I think people misunderstand the category um 
uh, you know very early on and 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 then you sort of if you have someone like I was fortunate enough to 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 have someone who was to you know an expert or guiding me through it to tell me that there's a little bit more about it then I think um yeah it opens your eyes quite dramatically and that's what happened to me and since that moment I just fell in love with the category then learned a little bit more about mescal as mescal uh, the growth of mescal um happened in 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 Europe as well so yeah it's it's been a a, a long time and a, a passion of mine i've been a brand ambassador within um the agave spirits category for over 15 years now so it's a long time yeah it is misunderstood as you say i mean you misunderstood it yourself i have misunderstood it at, at the start um it's for a lot of people, it's still synonymous with shots, very bad hangovers and worms, isn't it? Yes, it really is. And, you know, I think part of the reason for this is that so I when I was um, when I first started doing my uh, brand ambassador training sessions, I'd go and speak to bartenders and, uh, and, you know, and consumers like and I would say, hey, come on, tell me what's what's your have you got a tequila story that you can share with me? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, there was this one time that I. I went out and then I drank too much and then I had a terrible hangover and I fell over. But the thing that often gets missed out in these stories is the fact that people have probably already had a drink or two before they have tequila. So, you know, they may be out celebrating someone's birthday, have a glass of wine, have a bit of champagne, maybe have some beer, um, you know, maybe a cocktail. And then it gets later on in the evening when they decide to have tequila. So it's always tequila that gets the bad press or agave spirits that get the bad press, but it's never no one seems to take into account you know if they'd been drinking beforehand because you know if you have a night drinking responsibly on tequila um throughout you know the night and that's all you're drinking tequila cocktails or or sipping tequila you know you it like anything else if you drink in moderation you shouldn't wake up feeling absolutely terrible if you mix your drinks then there's a good chance that you're going to be feeling not too clever the next morning so there's yeah. that story that happens quite a lot and it's a very familiar story that i found um when people when i asked that question to people so for the beginner explain the difference between tequila and mezcal so tequila and mezcal i mean i i think to for an absolute beginner's point of view they are pretty much let's just call them you know brothers or you know closely related um spirits okay so tequila um is made from one specific type of agave plant which is called the weber blue agave and it has to be made in specific states in mexico to be called tequila now mezcal can be made in a lot more states than you can make uh, tequila in and it can also use a lot more different types of uh, varieties of the agave plant as well so uh, because terroir plays a big part in the difference between tequila and mezcal so i'd say the first thing is um, the type of agave you use the second thing is the production so the production what generally happens with agaves the plants that may be used are cooked in the ground in a pit um, and they are covered with earth and soil, um, um, and they have, as they're cooked in the, in the, in this pit, there's a, there's the uh, contact with volcanic rock and wood, so that's what gives it its smoky sort of flavour. So just imagine a load of agave plants that have been chopped into half or quarters into equal sizes, and then they're covered with earth and uh, a, a bigger tarpaulin, that's a big big piece of cloth and then some earth and then wood rested on the top so it's it's actually the great thing about mezcal is it's 
the agave plant is harvested and then it's returned to the earth. So when you cook, generally, when you're cooking the agave that makes tequila, it gets put into an oven. Okay, so it's cooked in a it cooked to steam, uh, steam cooked in a, in an oven. I mean, this is generalizing, but just to make it simple. Mm, yep. So th- obviously that's a major difference. And then obviously you look at the the style of production after that as well. You know, the palenques or the distilleries where uh, mezcal um, are, are produced and made are very rural, rudimental. Um, so there's a lot of natural fermentation that happens as well, you know, with the yeast that's in the air. So generally, there's a there's those are the, the the big sort of differences. So you know, it will be the type of agave that you can use, and the way that the agave is cooked, um, and then the many, many, many more varieties that you can use uh, the agave plants that you can use to uh, to to make mezcal. It would be fair to say, would it, that the process for making mezcal is more artisanal? Yeah, I think it would be a fair, a fair thing to say. I mean, there's there's two sides to this because I think that probably those who love tequila would say, well, you know, we produce it in a very artisanal way as well because there's you know lots of history, but. W- the, the the main difference is the scale of production because obviously tequila is a a more popular um, spirits category and so there's a bigger demand for it so that you'll find that the production techniques will be a larger scale. Um, there's a bit of, I mean, if you go to a hacker as I know you have been, it's it's wonderful. You go there and you see these these many many small producers, you know, just uh, producing um, mezcal and making mezcal, which kind of looks like you're going through someone's back garden you know you kind of go into a little gated area and then you'll see this sort of you know a few stills and you'll see the agaves there and you'll see this kind of fantastic there's no sort of yellow lines to stand behind when you're when you go to mezcal production it's very it's very natural it's very community um based production as well uh, sorry um category you feel a sense of huge community when you go to a hacker uh, and and other uh, mezcal producing states so it's you know it's really something that's for the community gives back to the community if it's done the right way it gives back to the community and it's and it's just a you know it's a it's a wonderful wonderful plant the agave plant and it can be used in many different ways and obviously we're talking about mezcal production now but you know i think it, the plant used to be called a plant of life because it was so versatile you could you know it used to be used um it's very fibrous um agave so it used to be um used and shredded and then kind of sewn together to make like uh, mats and uh, clothing um and then the leaves that are on the agave plants very very um so they're very water resistant so they used to be used to, uh, to for roofs on houses and then they've got little needles on them as well so little spikes on them so people used to use those spikes um, and then use the fibers to for like a needle and thread so and then obviously you can cook it and uh, and and people used to eat it and then you can cook you can cook it and then make alcohol from it so a wonderful plant it's so amazing i i just I would say to anyone who's interested in tequila and mezcal, just, you know, have a little Google um, of the agave plant and then you'll see just how many different varieties there are there. There's, there's you know, there's hundreds of varieties there and, and it's a really wonderful plant. 
That's incredible to think of it being the plant of life like that. The idea that you could have a roof over your head, something yeah. to eat, something really nice to drink, and a needle and thread from the same plant is is just yeah. extraordinary, really. Um, yeah. So tell us about the Lost Explorer then. So the Lost Explorer is the most awarded mezcal of 2021, and it is, I mean, it's simply delicious and amazing and I'm obviously slightly biased but I've tried quite a lot of mezcal in my time and what I would say about it is that the three variants that we have the Espadine, the Tabala and the Salmiana they are so different so those are the name of the agave plants so there's an Espadine which is responsible for the majority of mezcal production you'll see Espadine mentioned a lot with mezcal and that's a it doesn't necessarily mean that it's some people mistakenly think that because it's an espadine and there's lots of different espadines and it's a it's it's not high quality but that's not the truth because it because it's it's popular because of the fact that it produces great mezcal um and because of the yield that you get from it etc but so espadine is um one of the that's our first uh, variant and what's interesting with the Lost Explorer is that we have a little age statement to help people understand the differences between these agave plants. So the espadine, um, the average age of the espadine that we um, harvest for making our, our, our espadine is eight years. Then the uh, the tabula is 10 years. So these are the average age before it's even, you know, it's in the ground for this length of time. I mean, it's how incredible wow. is that, you know, that yeah. before before it can even be harvested. So some people don't quite understand why this is so expensive, why this can be, um, you know, why it's such a special liquid. Because even when you get to the Salmiana, that's 12 years old. So, you know, you've got eight for the Espadine, 10 for the Tabula and 12 for our Salmiana. And 12 years before it's in the ground, uh, sorry, before it's harvested while it's in the ground. I mean, it's just incredible. And that, and it's the, the Salmiana in particular, the older the, the agave plants are in the ground, they, they tend to be, you have to be really highly skilled to be able to get the, the absolute maximum out of these plants. Uh, and they have to be harvested in a very special way. They have to be cooked for a certain period of time. You have to really know about the plant. Luckily for us, we have a, a, a maestro, um, Mascadero, who is, uh, his name is Don Fortino Ramos, and he's just an award-winning um, absolute maestro. <laughs> and he, you know, gets this flavour coming through of the agave plant. So one thing that I would say that's very unique about the Lost Explorer is that we are what we call an agave-led mezcal and so by that i mean that you can taste the characteristics that you should be able to find in an espadine in our espadine and then the same with the tabula and the same with the salmiana so there's a little bit of you know there's gentle smoke uh, well actually as you go through the smoke actually changes a little bit but you know it's more of a sweeter smoke with ripe fruits and stuff like and, and a little bit of green notes that come through with the espadine when you go to the tabula which is 10 years old average age of 10 that's a little bit more cigar style smoky it's a bit more savory and then when you get over to the salmiana you've got this peppery citrusy grapefruit chili flavors that come through oh, it's just they're all amazing they're all so different mm. but really great for uh, for anyone who's first wanting to experience mezcal for the first time i would highly recommend trying um the whole uh, working your way through the portfolio but trying uh, the the uh, espadine first
I've tried the espadine and the smokiness is is divine. As you say, yeah. it does evolve as well. It evolves in the glass and it evolves in the mouth and, and the finish as well, uh, which is, is just um, remarkable. But it's also so incredibly smooth, isn't it? It really is. And, you know, again, this is down to the production and, you know, in the way that um, Don Fortino Ramos is, He's an absolute uh, expert at, at, at this and making smooth liquid. So his style of production is very much flavor first. And, you know, sort of you don't want he doesn't want it to be too much alcohol. Sometimes people associate mezcal with really high percentage uh, alcohol. And, you know, it's kind of you get that alcohol burn and then you get the other flavors. I would say that the Lost Explorer is perfectly balanced on all things. You get flavor, you get alcohol, you get the, you know, nice, you, you get a nice warm feeling, but no burn when you when you drink it and you get all of the flavors start to evolve in your mouth uh, once you sip it. So it's, it is, it, it, it's wonderful. And I think actually, you know, part of this be- comes from the way that we actually produce our, our mezcal as well. You know, we have a mission to become the most sustainable mezcal brand in the world. And we're really at the embryonic stages of that journey, but it's something that we're proud about. And, and I think it's something that we want to, you know, for people to know that this is a serious, um, you know, this is a serious commitment that we have because there is a worry that if you don't, you know, respect the earth and you don't give back to the earth and you don't try and make it as sustainable as possible, then, you know, the industry can't sustain itself unless you actually put back into, you know, into production as well. So there's many different steps that we're taking to do that. Obviously, one of the things that we have is, you know, our glasses are made from recycled crystal scraps. You know, the bottles, you know, everything that we use is natural beeswax for the uh, for uh, for the uh, for the wax and then natural cork. You know, it, we're using, we're, we're trying to find as many reclaimed wood as well. We're trying to find as many ways as possible to make sure that we are, you know, respecting the earth as well from uh, from where the agave plant comes from. I love that uh, beeswax uh, top to the, the bottle, actually. It's uh, really uh, classy. Um, yeah. Talking of classy, uh, tell us about the Mirror Margarita, because this was uh, named the cocktail of the year, uh, last year, which is a, a, a big uh, honour. Um, looking at the cocktail list, it looks like you can make your mirror margarita with either tequila or mezcal. Yeah, that's correct. And it was, do you know, it's probably, that that was a great moment actually for to, to get that award of, it was completely unexpected because we were up against some really fantastic um, cocktails from some of the biggest bars in the world as well. So yeah, we won that award and I was absolutely delighted and um, it's available in both tequila and mezcal. We, the mezcal is it, obviously the Lost Explorer uh, mezcal that we use and this that is actually my favourite cocktail at the moment and I think all of the bar team as well. It's funny because the tequila version is the original version and I really just you know obviously fell in love with that and so did the bar team and then I recreated the mezcal version specifically with the Lost Explorer so that all of those flavors of the Lost Explorer came out uh, and it works incredibly well so the cocktail itself is Mira Margarita uh, named so because um, it's crystal clear looks like a glass of water but it tastes like the most delicious margarita you'll ever try and you know to this day I would say probably 40 to 50 percent of our customers that come in they will just be holding a glass of water 
next to the mirror margarita and looking at one and looking at the other and going, well, how is this, <laughs> how is this possible? Why does it, but then when you have the, the mezcal version as well, again, they bet, you know, if you had a mezcal and tequila version next to each other, they look uh, identical, look like a glass of water, but they taste so completely different. So uh, it took a long, long time to get that right. But the one thing that actually is really important here is that I used the DNA of the agave plant to perfect this cocktail. So I did a lot of research on where the different flavors come from, where the different sours come from, what citrus notes are, you know, are, are mostly evident. And, and I, so I built the cocktail around the, 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 the DNA of the agave plant. And then as a consequence of that, it became uh, crystal clear. I mean, I knew that I wanted to have it clear, but just crystal clear um, took about four months to <laughs> four months to get right, but I'm pleased it did in the end. There's a lot of development work involved in making a new cocktail, isn't there? Yeah, there is. And I think it's, you know, you've got to ultimately have the idea of what it is that you're wanting to achieve with the cocktail. And for me, it was, I, I wanted to to kind of redefine what a margarita could be, because if you look at a margarita, and I also wanted obviously to make it delicious, but if you look at a margarita on a whole, um, generally, you know, when people have sort of innovated with margaritas, it's been through Add, add in an additional flavour. So whether it's a, I don't know, a strawberry and chilli, a strawberry and salted caramel margarita, or whatever it may be, or a strawberry margarita, it's always an addition of a flavour. Whereas I was more interested in, okay, the margarita's only got three key ingredients. How do I extract the absolute maximum from all three ingredients? So, you know, you've got your alcohol, um, your base, of it, which is either tequila or mezcal, then you've got your sour, and then you've got your sweetness. So how do I make those unique and how do I make them actually sing and complement each other in the best possible way? So I went really right back to the basics and, and just made tried to make those three components as, as uh, harmonious as possible. Well, talking of uh, trying to make things harmonious, um, you're a driving force in equal measures, as I mentioned in the introduction, which is around uh, diversity in the hospitality trade. Uh, tell us uh, why you decided to get involved with this and what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, I mean, Equal Measures is a, is a project that's a really personal project to me. Um, the platform was... Uh, formed last year and it was really I created it to raise awareness around the importance of diversity and inclusion within the hospitality industry and the reason I did it was because if you look at um, our wonderful society in um, London specifically in the UK as a whole there is a little bit of a disparity where the industry doesn't really reflect the people that it serves it's very there's there's not too many as a as I am a black business owner that has a you know successful uh, a successful bar, um, I look at the representation of of people of colour um, within positions of responsibility and senior management positions, uh, and it's very very low. I look at the you know I think five star hotels and 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 top hotels are also a, a, one of the places that I I've, I've found. A little bit there's a misrepresentation there that you you know there's there's not enough uh, people of color in customer facing positions and certainly not in in um, positions of responsibility so um you know and i was interested in all of this stuff and thinking about you know the big corporate companies that have the power to make to enforce change you know are they doing enough what more can be done you know what are their you know 
can we look at everything from recruitment policies to the you know i'm talking as a as a as a uh, industry a drinks industry as a whole now you know can we look at the way that we're recruiting people are the best people getting put into positions are there barriers that are holding people back is there a glass ceiling that exists and i used all of my experience to know that the answer to those questions are yes there is a glass ceiling Yes, there are opportunities that I've missed out on because I know that we're based on, you know, the colour of my skin. Is there enough being done around education? Um, the answer is probably no as well. Are there enough people out there that are mentoring and educating people? The answer, you know, people of colour and, and helping them feel like you can get ahead. You know, so I, I wanted to really make a difference. And what happens generally is, you know, I think the statistics speak for themselves, the amount of people that drop out of hospitality after the age of around 24 is quite remarkable. So, mm. you know, how do, we, how do we retain those people? Because one thing that I'm sure about is you can do absolutely anything that you want to do in this category as long as you have somebody who can inspire you and, and push you in the right direction. You can do whatever job you want to do, whether it's marketing, whether it's PR, whether it's production, whether it's brand development, whether it's being a brand ambassador. You can tour the world like I've been able to do, talking about agave spirits. It just You just have to, but it's not easy. And, and I, I want to make it easier for people to be able to do that. But then also I want everyone to take responsibility and say, we can do more um, and we can be better. So one of the, actually can share some um, breaking news with you now. So one of the oh. things that's actually going to be happening, which is super, super exciting, is that in a few weeks' time, we will be uh, partnering um, officially with the uh, with the Drinks Trust. Uh, so the, the drink, Drinks Trust is the biggest um, charitable organisation associated with the drinks industry in the UK. Um, and we are partnering with, uh, with with the Drinks Trust so that we can amplify everything that we do quite dramatically. Um, so there'll be just one platform that will be called Equal Measures in association with the Drinks Trust. And from that, we will um, have the ambition to become probably the single most important platform for diversity and inclusion in, in, in uh, and inequality issues in the UK. So you could have somewhere, uh, you know, a new website where you'd be able to get in touch with someone for seminars, for consultancy, for educational stuff, for mentorship, for, you know, courses that are available for, um, you know, um, Q&A sessions, panel discussions, um, work, uh, workshops, um, mentorship sessions, work experience, everything. Uh, we're wow. developing that so that within the next 12 months, we hope that we will become, you know, the a, a really uh, one central point for people to come and, and, and learn and, and, and grow um, and have everything that they need for um, diversity issues. Well, that's fantastic. And uh, thank you for giving us the, uh, the breaking news as well. Um, so in terms of uh, you know, how that's been received within the hospitality business, clearly you've, you've had some significant success already. Uh, has it been kind of well received? Yeah. I mean, do you know what? It's been amazing. I've been completely taken aback by how you never know how these things are going to be received specifically because I do feel, I mean, this is probably quite rightly so. It's an it's an issue that, or sorry, a topic that if you're not quite sure on what your stance is or how to make the right statement on it, then, you know, people or companies tend to stay quiet on it. But what's happened is that I've had a lot of people reaching out to me saying, look, you know, 
I didn't realize this was a big issue, but actually now thinking about it, it is an issue. How do I get better? You know, can you help me with my recruitment policy? Um, can you come in and do a talk to my team so that they're aware of why there are um, bigger issues? And I'm, you know, I, I've spoke to events companies, corporate companies, even even uh, huge some of the biggest football clubs in in uh, in in the UK as well. I've I've sort of done uh, sessions with them to help them as well. So. Um, it's you know hotel groups what's been really pleasing is that those people that maybe felt a little bit nervous about approaching you know how they can improve their uh, diversity and, and and inclusion policies that they have have actually reached out so I think you know I, I, I was thinking I was going to have to send a load of emails around to everyone and saying would you, you know this is what I'm doing you know blah 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 but it, it, it's been the other way around people have come to me and and continue to come to me I, I it's daily I receive um, emails or messages honestly daily about equal measures and and how how um, you know how people can help or what they want to do and you know and the importance of it and even to be perfectly honest I've had messages from people in the states and in um africa and in uh in in a couple of european countries as well that have said to me love what you're doing how would we be able to do something similar here? fantastic and, and and you know that that's amazing i have to say there's a couple of there's a few there's a few companies that have been really proactive in this and I've, i think it's only right to call to, to to call out one in particular who's who i'm going to be working quite closely with which is johnny walker Johnny Walker Whiskey, um, so I'm going to be doing quite a lot of work on their diversity uh, uh, diversity policies and um, I'm go we're going to be doing quite a lot of stuff in community together as well, so we do community outreach projects as well, so, so that's going to be a big thing. Um, and then moving on, the other biggest thing for Equal Measures is that because I've been getting so much positivity and so many requests and, 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 uh, and emails, when the new venue opens, we're going to be having a dedicated day which is called community day so community day will be once a week um the venue the new atcha will uh, probably from the autumn will close one day a week uh, and have a community day um, which will be a um, a day where um, it will be free to um, community or any local community or anyone who wants to come along to learn a little bit more about um, the importance of diversity. So it may be even that we'll showcase certain brands that are owned by, you know, black or uh, or people of colour. Um, we'll showcase some of their brands for them. We'll do cooking masterclasses. We'll do workshops. We'll do training. We'll do management uh, coaching sessions panel discussion so every every uh, every week yeah what once once a week we will have that that going on um, which is you know that will be run by equal measures and we'll be doing in in partnership with many other brands as well so so right. that's really really exciting um to be able to combine the two things that i'm really passionate about you know the equal measures and atcha in one space together so that was that's something to be yeah as i say really to look forward to yeah, yeah, and that's that's the new Achabar, which will open in Brixton in about five or six weeks' time. That's right, yeah. Yeah, in Brixton Market, yeah. Wonderful. All right, well, she'll definitely come along there. Uh, I, I'm yet to have your mirror margarita, so I'm oh, no. definitely going to do that. I know I'm going to do that. And it's always great to chat to you, Dino. So thank you so much uh, for joining us here on The Drinking Hour. No, it's my pleasure, and uh, I look forward to seeing it at you uh, soon. And, uh, yeah, it's nice to chat to you. Cheers.
In a moment, we'll have the first of our recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. But first, here's news of another Food FM programme you might love. Thank you, David. I'm Jenny Linford from Food FM, and I'm exploring the world of cheese, from brie to parmesan and everything in between. So after enjoying the drinking hour, why not listen to my series, A Slice of Cheese? You can find it on your podcast platform and foodfmradio.com. Now back to David and the drinking hour. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. It's time for the first of our recommendations for medal-winning wines and spirits from the pick of the 2021 winners at the IWSC. If you were inspired by Sarah Abbott, MW, uh, one of our first episodes, I think it was number two or three, talking about Georgian wines, uh, then you should try this gold medal winner if you can get hold of it. Satrapezzo Mitsvani 2018 from JSC Televavi Wine Cellar is made in a kvevery from Mitsvani grapes, uh, buried in the ground for five months. Um, only natural yeasts found on the grape skin are used for the fermentation and it's handled incredibly gently with the manual punching down and only coarse filtration. Uh, the judges said a deep and expressive example of an accomplished orange wine. Notes of orange peel, apricot, jam and tropical fruits compete joyously with hints of walnut and marzipan. An earthy quality accompanies a hint of tannin and a lasting finish. And that's available at the Georgian Wine Guild. Next, it's to Italy. Liano Sangiovese Cabernet Sauvignon 2018 from Umberto Cesari, uh, made in the Rubiconi IGT. Uh, it won a silver medal. Umberto Cesari was founded in 1964. And here's an interesting fact. The author John Grisham apparently fell in love with the wine during a trip to Bologna in 2005. And he actually mentions it in his book, The Broker. Uh, the judges said of this wine, pronounced aromas of dark chocolate and plum. The palate has a rich concentration of dark berry fruit and new oak flavours with polished tannins, good length and elegant. And that one's imported by Halgarten, so it'll be available in good independent wine shops. And here's a gold outstanding Mezcal too, if you're now in the mood for something smoky. Um, Los Vecinos del Campo Mezcal Turbala. Casa San Matias uh, won a gold outstanding medal. That's 98 points or above for the spirits. Um, it's made with 100% Tabala Mezcal. This is relatively new to the market, a collaboration between the mighty Sazerac Group and Casa San Matias, one of the oldest tequila distilleries in Mexico. The judges said aromatics of ripe, dark forest fruits, dark, fully ripened grape skins and the leaf lead into a flavour profile combining the additions of white pepper and tonka bean, mingling with deftness and precision. Sweet, easy drinking and delightful. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Now, life is never dull for a wine buyer, as we're about to find out in our regular monthly chat with Freddie Bulmer, buyer for Australia, New Zealand, Austria and Eastern Europe at the Wine Society. And he joins us now live from glamorous Stevenage. Hello, Freddie. <laughs> Hello, David. How are you? You OK? I'm good. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> good, one good. of the boons of being a wine buyer 
is getting out of Stevenage, I suppose, uh, is foreign travel. <laughs> um, it's uh, still fraught with challenges, red lists, testing uh, and the like, uh, but it's, yeah. at least it's possible again. Now, a wine buyer normally does a huge amount of uh, foreign travel, uh, doesn't he or she? <laughs> yes, he or she does. Um, no, that normally we're on the road quite a lot. You know, it's quite a key part of the job. And so it's been a real uh, change, I guess. I mean, it's been a lot of change for, for, for everybody in so many ways over the last 16 months or so. But uh, one of the really key parts of the job is getting out into the vineyards and the wineries and seeing things firsthand. So it's been it's been very unusual. And how have you managed uh, over those 16 months to do your job when it has been physically impossible to get into those vineyards and into those wineries? Good question. I think, you know, we've had to adapt a lot. I think I speak for everybody who's a, a you know, a buyer in a similar position to, to myself. Uh, we've had to adapt a lot and really get used very quickly to working digitally, I suppose. There's been so many Zoom tastings and uh, uh, online seminars, masterclasses, roundtable discussions, all that sort of thing, which uh, very quickly filled up the diary. But one of the key things that was, that's been very difficult to adapt to and I don't think can be replaced is the the gossip you know the gossip that you get direct from the winemaker or from, you know when you're standing in the vineyard or in the winery and you're hearing about what's going on at the winery next door and all that sort of thing it's the kind of the little nuggets of information which i, I think are very hard to actually replicate without getting out there and are you starting to get back out there again now then so, so uh, for me personally, working mostly with Australia and New Zealand, I am still oh. <laughs> stuck indoors. Yeah, which mm. is a shame. But uh, one of my colleagues, Toby, did get out to Burgundy very recently. He just got back the other day. So I think as a team, we're getting out on the road again gradually. I'm desperate, desperate to get uh, back on a plane, which is something I never thought I'd say before when travel was normal. Uh, you know, the last thing that you want to do in normal times is get back on another plane. But uh, I'm really missing it. So I think it's unlikely I'll get out to Australia and New Zealand until at least next year at this rate. But I'm keeping my fingers crossed that Austria is is possible uh, before too long. Mm. Uh, yes, I mean it's we we kind of um, with our own case levels here. It, it, it's kind of tricky to know who's going to let us in and um, uh, who'll be happy. But I mean, of course, there's vaccination and, and all the rest of it. Um, you exactly. talked about the the, the, the gossip. Um, how important is tasting the wines in situ, looking at the vines at the same time? I think it's really important. Actually, it's a really good question. Um, I think that by doing it uh, at the winery or in the vineyard where the wine comes from it does help to give you a much sort of broader understanding of what's in the glass so uh, it's then easier as well to be able to kind of paint that picture for the drinker who at the end of the day you know you hope will be picking that bottle of wine off the shelf or off the website or whatever because if you've yourself experienced that firsthand it's much easier to, to translate that but also being able to have the conversation with the person that's made it is a really really important thing too so but, you know, tastings with winemakers as much as you can you know, do that on Zoom. And I think we've all been doing lots of that sort of thing on Zoom. It's it's much more formal when it's kind of when it's digital. You you maybe don't ask the little questions that that if you were in person and face to face, you might ask in a more kind of conversational way. 
uh, when you're doing things digitally, it's much more kind of transactional and formal, uh, which which is it's, it's difficult because then you don't get necessarily all the the sort of or the depth of information that you might do in person. So it's definitely something that I'm desperate to get back to doing and getting out there and, and you know, seeing some people in real life uh, will be fantastic and tasting with people in real life will be fantastic and in a vineyard even better. And what about physical tastings? Because we were talking uh, last month about the virtual wine society press tasting, which was a great success, although yeah. I'm not a huge fan of virtual tastings. I, <laughs> I prefer being there in person. Well, what's yes, your take? You. Because you, you, you do quite a lot of um, activity with your Wine Society members too, physically, uh, pre the pandemic. Um, what's your own take on, on how important it is to kind of be there? Oh, I think it's really important. I'm like you, really. Uh, you know, the digital tastings are not not really my cup of tea you know we do them because we have to do them at the moment but it's not the same as being together with people again and obviously you know on one side of that you've got the tastings with the winemakers but actually being able to taste with the people who are hopefully going to be drinking these wines in their homes you know that's a that's a great thing to be able to do as well and as you said before um you know the wine society we we always used to have a pretty chock-a-block calendar of physical events uh, which is something I, I never thought I'd be describing events specifically as physical pre the pandemic they were just events um, <laughs> yeah. but uh, but uh, yeah we used to do a lot of that sort of thing and it was fantastic because it gave people the opportunity to, to ask questions about wines that they were thinking of buying to drink at home you know myself and my colleagues would be at those sorts of tastings and we're really passionate about what we buy and what we list so it's a great opportunity for us to be able to uh, have an opportunity, yeah, to, 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 dis to discuss the wines that we bought and why we bought them and why we believe in them and that sort of thing. And again, doing that in person is just so much nicer, <laughs> frankly. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, here's a question, though. There are those who say the world has changed forever. Um, mm. We can do things virtually. Uh, we, there's no need to travel. It's better for the planet. Um, what's your take on that? So, of course, you know, there are benefits to uh, the, you know, less travel and that sort of thing. And perhaps it's given us a good opportunity to think a little bit more about the impact on the environment and that sort of thing. I think everyone will approach things, oh, I hope so, hopefully anyway, with a slightly more kind of balanced mindset or at least acknowledging the fact that if we do travel, there is uh, there is an impact uh, with doing that. You know, planes aren't exactly the most environmentally friendly things. Um, but I think this whole situation has proven that to do this job well, you have to be uh, as close to the vineyard, as close to the winery, as close to the people who've made those wines as possible, uh, because that's where you find the, the, you know, the interesting wines. That's where you find the interesting stories and that sort of thing. So I do think that we will go back to traveling, um, but perhaps we will just have to think a little bit more about what is the the most sensitive way to do that while still getting the results, I guess. So I think there'll be a lot of a, of balancing, really. Talking of the climate, it's been uh, incredibly hot lately, <laughs> certainly week before last. Yes. Uh, what would your choices be for um, summer drinking? Uh, you can't say beer, by the way. You have to say wine. Uh, what uh, would it be? Oh, gosh. I, do you know what I love, actually, for summer drinking? I mean, obviously, obviously, rosé uh, goes without saying as a reason why rosé sales go through the roof as soon as the sun shines. But I'm a really big fan of sort of lighter styles of red that are chillable. 
Um, so I'm a, I'm a huge lover of things like um, uh, New Zealand Pinots and that sort of thing. Beaujolais, of course, you cannot go wrong with uh, with a Beaujolais, especially if you stick it in the fridge for sort of 20 minutes or so oh, before yeah. drinking it. I think it's absolutely lovely. Um, but also, do you know what I've been drinking uh, recently, which I've really, really enjoyed? is really vibrant kind of fresh crunchy australian grenache which again goes in the fridge really well for not for long 20 minutes or so 25 minutes before opening it but it's this sort of new wave of uh well new style i suppose of grenache which is doing really really well in australian and seems to be quite exciting where it's being made in a sort of pinot-esque sort of way so it's not too big and heavy and tannic it's actually light and crisp and fresh and it's the the perfect barbecue wine style yeah i'd agree with that i love those uh, aussie grenaches i've tasted over the last year i'd add sanso to your list as well actually yes. for for chilling uh had a you know, some south african sanso really lovely. really lovely but uh, lovely. what about white wines in uh summer obviously it's a more um, obvious association because we drink those chilled but are there particular yeah. whites that are really good for hot sunny days do you know, I think actually uh, you can apply a similar sort of rule here as the this the simple rule you can apply for food and wine matching where they say what grows together goes together. And I think you can think of countries which have a, a hot climate, uh, you know, wine producing countries which have a hot climate and think, well, what do they drink there? And, uh, and so I'm immediately drawn to white wines of sort of southern Spain. There's some really, really interesting uh, and delicious uh, white blends down there, which are fantastic for summer drinking. Um, but then, I mean, I also love uh, lots of Sicilian and Southern Italian white wines too. I think they can be fantastic mm. for the summer. Um, but it depends on what you're doing as well. You know, I think, as you say, there's, white wine just does naturally lend itself to summer drinking because of the fact that you can chill it. So there's, so you're sort of spoilt for choice there, really. Um, but one that does again immediately come to mind because of the whole sort of, well, I suppose sunshine in a glass, we link more to Australia than New Zealand, but I'm thinking really of uh, New Zealand Sauvignon, of course, is just wonderfully mm. thirst quenching thanks to that crispness of acidity. So a nice chilled glass yes. of uh, something like Dog Point Sauvignon is absolutely lovely. Oh yeah, that, that, that's a. It is um, really just the perfect uh, summer wine, Marlborough Sauvignon. Yeah. I think uh, I'd uh, I'd absolutely concur. You talked about <laughs> rosé, and uh, you're a, a fan of rosé. Um, I've uh, just written my column for Club Enologique this month. Yes, um, I read coming it. Coming out. Very good. Thank you, thank you. Coming <laughs> out for rosé because when I. Um, uh, I'm a bit older than you, and when I first sort of fell in love with rosé wine, it was quite embarrassing to drink it <laughs> if you were a man. It was really, it sounds bizarre now, um, but um, and it's it's not an issue anymore. I mean, the, as I say no. in the column, the latest, the latest rosé celebrity one to launch is from a, uh, you know, a gangster rapper in the United States. So <laughs> that alone. tells you how much, it, yeah, that tells you how much it's changed. But um, exactly. what's your take on, um, on, on sort of that change in perception of, of rosé wine I think it's fantastic to be honest I love rosé and you do every now and again still hear of people saying oh rosé that's disgusting isn't it but it's probably because they've been they've been scarred in the past you know there, there has been lots of not very good rosé on the market um, 
But I think as with the whole wine industry, the quality's never been better. So there's never been a better time to jump into rosé. Um, of course, there's the whole sort of uh, brosé uh, movement, I guess, with, uh, you know, guys drinking more rosé and uh, all for that. That's fantastic. But no, I do think that rosé doesn't deserve the stigma that it perhaps once had. And actually, again, for a lovely, refreshing glass of something on a, on a hot day like we've had recently, you really cannot go wrong with a good rosé yes there's always one in the fridge at home and uh, and i love it and if anybody's got a problem with guys drinking rosé they need to get a grip <laughs> well exactly i suggest they take it up with post malone themselves exactly, actually yes. uh, i'd like to see how that went yeah yeah okay well i look forward to catching up uh, for a brosé session uh, with you at some point soon can't Andy. wait thank you very can't thank wait. you very much thanks so much david speak soon the drinking hour on food fm you're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. There's just time for our final batch of medal-winning wines and spirits from the IWSC Hall of Fame. And here's one that Freddie would uh, most definitely love. He goes wild for Gruner. A gold medal winner, Reed Loiseberg, Alter Rieben, Gruneveltliner 2019 from Weingut Rabel, from some of the best slopes around Langenloy in the Kaptal, beautiful area. The judges said the wine drips with the decadence of overripe fruit harvested in a late autumn haze. The sunset of summer creating complex flavours of apricot, fig, golden peach and candied ginger. Custard cream biscuits are evoked by vanilla and nutmeg from cleverly integrated oak. Sounds really fascinating, divine in fact, and uh, Gruneveltlin are definitely worth ageing as well. To Portugal next, and a silver medal winner with 92 points made from uh, Castelao, Paco do Bispo 2019 from Vinicola de Palmela. Uh, formed in 1964, the winery brings producers of the Palmela area together and it was expanded in the 1990s. The judges said of this particular wine, notes of black plums, dark chocolate and robust herbs, rich, supple and undeniably classy with a palate of fig and mocha. Divine. That's the judges divine rather than mine this time. Does sound great though. And finally, another magical mezcal, Koch. El Mezcal Madrihiche won a gold outstanding with 98 points. It's made with the Madrihiche agave, which grows incredibly tall, takes 12 years to mature. Uh, the Koch group employs uh, over 50 families around the Oaxaca region uh, to make their mezcal. The judges said of this, amazingly interesting aromas of lime, blackcurrant, chocolate and rose petals. The palate continues to delight, combining smoke elements with freshness of minerality and citrus fruit zest. Further layers of flavour develop further fruits and smoke to a long, lingering finish. And that one, if you want to find it, is imported by Spirits Cartel. And that's it for The Drinking Hour here on Food FM this week. My thanks to Dino and Freddie for the chats and thank you to you for listening. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram or Twitter or you can follow me as well. I'm Mr Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. And if you like what you heard, this is the usual begging bit uh, and you're listening on iTunes, do please give us a nice five-star review because that's uh, really helpful. Thank you for this week and goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM.